All right, we're going to get into Genesis 2. Um, and I think what I want to do is let me... Um, let's think about just reading the whole chapter and then jumping back into different pieces of it. Uh, rather than that, I'm going to read chunks at a time and then we'll talk about chunks. Okay? So, uh, Genesis 2, if it helps you, it's on page 6 in my Bible. <laughs> right up front. Um... Let me just start with this. Uh, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Let me just stop right there in those first three verses. Genesis 1 gives us kind of a broad picture of the creation, the, the creation account. Six days of creation. Uh, animals and, and mankind created on the sixth day. God continually says, it is good, it is good, it is good. The second day, actually, he does not pronounce anything good on the second day. On the third day, he pronounces it good twice. So the third day gets a double blessing, uh, which is a Tuesday. I said last week, that's why the Orthodox Jews get married on Tuesday, because they think that day holds a double blessing. Uh, and in the back of my mind, that's one reason why I chose to do first Tuesdays. So we will pray on the day that is doubly blessed. Um, so anyway, so, so that's that, just chapter one. And we, we, look, we talked about some details of the creation account in chapter one. Um, I said I wasn't going to get down in the deep weeds of it all, and I don't want to. Um, those are fun studies to do, but for this uh, uh, sake of, uh, of this Bible study, we're going to read it to get something out of it. Um, there's all kinds of resources to jump into, creation evangelism, and all kinds of stuff, reasons to believe about a, a lot of the, the subtleties of creation that continue to point to the validity of creation. Um, I, I'm not going to jump into all of that. Um, we talked about a few of those last week. Uh, I encourage you to listen to that last week. And again, if you want to get into that deep stuff, uh, I know creation evangelism does. I know uh, reasons to believe does. Uh, Jim, do you know of other other resources out there um, off the top of your head? Reasons to, reasons to believe is really powerful. Um, but chapter one deals with the creation and the grand, the, the, the grand picture of it all. <clears throat> Genesis 2, we see another telling of the creation of man and woman. It's not two separate creation accounts. It's, some people believe that one writer wrote Genesis 1 and a different writer wrote Genesis 2. That's, that, that's not accurate either. Same writer. It's just Genesis 1 gives us broad strokes. Genesis 2 comes in and fills in some details, not of the entire creation, but certainly of the creation of humanity. Okay? If you remember that Genesis is the book of origins, the origin of the universe, the origin of, 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 of the earth, the origin of mankind, the origin of sin, the origin of redemption, the origin of God's people. It's, the, it's a book of origins. And so <clears throat> what we see in Genesis 1 is the origins of everything. And in Genesis 2, we see a, 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 a little more snapshot of, of, with clarity of the origins of humanity. 
And right at the very beginning, verse 2, by the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. God blessed the seventh day, made it holy because on it he rested from the work of creating that he had done. When the Bible says God rested, don't think in terms of when we take a rest. It's not a rest out of tiredness. It's not a rest because the creative work for God was exhausting. It's not that he had to get out his, you know, godly hammock and, you know, take a little nap and a siesta. The word rest means to stop. That's all it means. Uh, And so he finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he stopped from all his work. That's how verse 2 reads. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he stopped the work of creation. He could have continued creating. To say that, that, that he was done because he was tired would be a very limiting statement about God. And if you, th- if you understand the nature of God, you understand that God is a creative. He could have kept creating. J- just think for a moment. Use your sanctified imagination. If in this time frame, God created the colors and the spectrum that we have, and then he chose to stop, how many more, how many more colors could he have created? You understand what I'm saying? It's not that he ran out of ideas. He chose to stop. Think about how many more plants and animals he could have created. I think he was getting pretty creative with the duckbill platypus. But just um, think about how much he could have continued to create. He rested not because he was tired. Not because there was nothing else to do. But he rested because he chose to stop. Um, and one of the reasons he chose to stop was to give us an example and to set for us um, a type. Um, he was content with the work he had done, and he chose to get his hands off it now. And part of this was a, re, was, was, was a, a, a picture and a rule for us to follow. The Bible says six days you should work, but the seventh is is not for you to work anymore. Because here's why. When we work, we're not working for the past, we're working for the future, right? Right? uh, Work is always pointed ahead of us. Now, it might be because of what we did in the past that we have to work for the future, i.e. debt, (laughs) But, but, but work is always focused on my production for the future. And so when we follow God's example and say, now I'm going to stop, I'm no longer focused on the future. Now I'm stopping and choosing to rest in God's provision for the future without my help. You understand that? And so we stop and we rest, not just because we're tired, but because we're following the example of God and we're saying enough is enough. And now I'm going to let God worry about my future for this one day this week. And rather than focusing on the future during that one day, when we stop and rest, we focus on the past. On God's goodness, that he's, how good he's been to us in the past. 
on his provision for us. We can look back and say, God continually shows up. He continually answers. He continually is with me. I don't have to worry about tomorrow. I'm stopping. I'm choosing to stop. And when we think that that we are so all-powerful that tomorrow needs us, we put ourselves in the place of God and we stop following his example. And so that's why, and it's interesting, it was a command in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we're never commanded to obey the Sabbath. That's not a New Testament command. It's an Old Testament command. But that doesn't mean we don't still follow the example. And so there ought to be one day, at least one day a week, where every one of God's people just simply follows the example of him and we choose to stop our focus on the future. And we say, God, it is enough. This is exactly what God's people did in the going through the desert when God would give them manna. Six days, he says, you collect it. But on the sixth day, how much do you collect? A double portion. Because on the seventh day, you don't collect anything. I'm going to give you enough on the first six to where you're not going to have to worry about the seventh. So collect a double portion on the sixth and then don't worry about your future on the seventh. Thank me for what I've done and let remind you what I'm going to do. And the Bible says those who went out and were worried about their future on the seventh, they collected a whole bunch of, what, what, what did it, it rotted. Or if they went out on the seventh day, it wasn't there because God was forcing them. To stop. And so that, that's, that's one of the first lessons that we have to understand from Genesis 2. He stopped and he, he rested. He chose to stop. Um, he could have kept working, but he was given some, uh, an example. The, the New Testament, Jesus says, man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. So God created this, this rule for this example for us for our benefit. So we don't wear ourselves out. So we remember how good he is. And so it forces us to put our trust in his provision. It forces us. Um, And one of the, uh, out of the Ten Commandments, one of the commandments that is the most disobeyed is the Sabbath command. To stop, to worship, to rely on his provision, to look back at all he's done, right? Right? Um, and it's interesting. I, I, th- this struck me today. If someone read verse three out loud, then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from all the work He had cre- He all the work of creating that He had done. So He made it. It was holy because <clears throat> why? It was holy, notice the words, because he rested. Don't miss that. It was holy because he rested. It's part of our becoming holy to stop working and to stop producing and to trust God's provision. It's in the act of stopping and resting relying on him, not producing, that makes us holy. Do you understand that? And the, what, the reason it does that is because it puts God on the forefront and us in the submissive seat. 
the obedient seat. And any time God's in the driver's seat and we're in the submissive seat, that's, a, that's holiness. So, let me read uh, verse 4 and follow me down. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field uh, had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man... Uh, to work uh, to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Now look at verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. I, I don't want us to get lost right now in how God chose to water the earth. Obviously, uh, he had an irrigation system that worked pretty well. Um, and, and the, the, you know, supposedly this canopy over the earth protected was an insulating force from the UV rays that, that, that destroy so much of our planet and, and people now. That was all protected because it hadn't rained yet. Most people believe that that canopy was, was taken out of the way when it first rained on the, in the days of Noah. Uh, the, the, the ground held water. There was water over, so there was mist coming down and ground uh, water coming up that kind of watered everything. Um, I don't want to get lost in the details of all that and how this and how that. What I want to focus on is God's formation of humanity. God formed man. What's it say? God formed man from what? Verse 7. Dust of the ground. The dust of the ground. And breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. Um, someone go to Psalm 103. Uh, th- this is really important. God formed us from the dust of the ground, the dirt. This is really important. We could, we could uh, read over it and not pay attention to it, but I want us to pay attention. It's there for a reason. God's going to come back to this idea about the dust of the ground in Psalm 103. Um, s- someone read... Um, just verse 14. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. So, so this is the psalmist talking about God. And the psalmist is saying, God knows who we are and that we're nothing other than dirt. That's what God says. Now, let me go back in Psalm 103 and give you some context. Uh, starting in verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. I love that verse. Or repay us according to our iniquities. I love that verse. He could, but he doesn't. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Because he knows how we were formed and remembers that we're nothing but dirt. It's important to realize who we are. I hope you hear what I'm saying in this. I think sometimes we expect more out of ourselves than God expects out of us. 
We are dirt. And the only thing that makes us unique is the breath of God that he breathed in us. When I think about the idea that we are just dirt, my mind goes to 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Uh, let me read that for you. 2 Corinthians 4, 7. You might want to take some notes about this stuff so you can look this stuff later and contemplate it. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says this. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You know what clay is? Dirt. It's dirt. And what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4-7 is that this, this glory and the power of God is deposited in really dirty people. Jars of clay. The, the glory of God, as seen in his grace, is deposited in very dirty vessels. You understand that? That's what clay is. That's what dust is. Matter of fact, the name for Adam is not just man. It literally comes from the word dusty. And that wasn't a cute nickname. And so God takes this, the glory of his, of his being exhibited in his grace and pours it in, in dirty vessels. Here's our problem. We try to make the vessel look good. Do you understand? We work real hard to convince ourselves and convince everybody else that I'm not a dirty vessel. Think for a moment. Have any of you been to a really like world-class museum, art museum? Have any of you seen, seen like world-class art? Like the dog shooting pearl, the black light one? I mean, world-class art. Okay, so if, if you look at a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh or a Monet or something like that, those brilliant pieces of art, those masterpieces. Now, they're called masterpieces because they're pieces of the master. Those masterpieces, are any of them ever framed in a neon sparkling light frame? Why? They're not. Why? Okay, the frames would distract from what? From the masterpiece. Here's what happens when we try to make my dirty vessel look beautiful. All we're doing is saying, notice me, don't notice God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. When, when we try to clean the outward up so well that now I look like the masterpiece. All we're doing is saying, look at the bells and whistles. Don't look at the masterpiece. Look at me. How degrading is it to a Monet to put it in a neon flashing frame? It's the same way with God and us. God knows how we're formed. We expect more out of us than God expects of us. He knows who we are. And so when I can say with authenticity, I'm struggling, I'm hurting, this is difficult, I don't have it together, and I'm still full of cracks. Yet God continues, not because of who I am, but because this is incredible bounty of mercy and grace 
continues to not just use me, but bless me? That makes no sense. I'm filthy. And not only that, if you go to Judges, I think it's 6, 7, and 8, the story of Gideon. How many of you Bible students know the story of Gideon? Yeah? Anybody know the story of Gideon, one of the judges? Has to fight the Midianites. Has too many people. God says, pare it down. If you go to war with all these people against this huge army, you might win. But if you win, you'll think you did it and not me. And so he says, get rid of a bunch of people. How many, did the, how many people did God get the army down to? Anybody know? 300. 300 against thousands. And so here was the plan. God said, take your 300 men. Put them on the rim around this valley. Each man hold a tor- a lit torch with a clay jar over it. So the, so the light is hidden. And when it stands shoulders all around. And so when I blow the trumpet, break the jar, and the light will shine forth. You understand where I'm going with this? So the light of God is hidden until the dirty vessel is cracked and broken. And the moment that happens, the light of God shines and those in darkness lose their ever-loving minds because they see the glory of God through the cracked, broken vessel. So when you and I go through those times of breaking, when you and I go through those times of, of, of just, it, it's, it's cracking us, not, not cracking us up like it's funny, but cracking <clears throat> us up like it's painful. It's in those times, if we're submissive, that God, the glory of God and the radiance of Christ shines through our cracks and our brokenness. Rather than us trying to hold it together, I'm okay, I'm, I can handle this and nothing's going to break me, I'm alright, and I'm certainly sure as hell not going to let anybody know I'm broken. All that does is conceal and cover and hide the glory of God, His mercy and grace, and the power of Christ. God knows who you are. God knows who I am. And I'm amazed day after day after day that as Psalm 103 says, he does not treat me as my cracks deserve. He does not hold my brokenness against me. And it's not because the frame is so beautiful. It's because of the masterpiece in a nasty frame. Does that make sense? I, I don't want us to read this and and lose and lose the important stuff in the words. It'd be so easy for us to read over this God made man from the dust of the earth and the ground and breathe okay, well. Mm-hmm. It's important because of what it says about us and what it says about God. And I love the fact that God knows that we are dust. And he has chosen in his mercy and grace to love us and to bless us and to not walk out on us just because we get cracked up and broken. And I guarantee you, some of you, some of us, who have been the most broken, if we will allow Christ, we are the ones through whom Christ will shine the brightest. 
Do you understand that? It's not from those who have never had a chip. The dirtiest frames make the masterpieces look the most beautiful. And if God can take broken, messed up, dirty people and do what God does, how good must God be? Do you understand? Mm -hmm. He's just incredible. Uh, verse 8, Now the Lord had planted, in, uh, had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree, uh, in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember those. Verse 10. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is uh, the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good aromatic resin, and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. Uh, it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Uh, let me stop right there. So these four rivers, we know two of them, Right? We know two of them, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates. We don't know the other two. We have no idea where those were. There's, there's, there's no real historical data about those other rivers. All we know is the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now, the Tigris and the Euphrates, we know where they are in, in, in our current globe now. But please understand, that's no reason to think that where those rivers are now is where the Garden of Eden was. Because at this point, this was all pre-flood, all pre-catastrophe. Do you know how much the earth has changed since after the flood and over thousands and thousands and thousands of years? No, you don't. Neither do I. It's changed a lot. And so who knows where it was? All we know is where those rivers are. And so... To say this is where Eden was, this you just don't. It, it's all it's all just hypothesis and, and talking from ignorance. Okay, some things God wants us to know for sure. Other things He said, wants to say, okay, I I don't know, and I'm okay not knowing. Anyway, uh, the Lord God verse uh, was that verse fifteen. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. When the Bible says to work it. That literal word in Hebrew means to enslave it. It doesn't mean, though, as a hard taskmaster. It means to have dominion and authority over it. To care for it. To be tender with it. To love it and provide. To manage it. It doesn't mean to lord over it. and It doesn't mean to enslave it as we think of enslavement. He, he, he gave him authority over it all. Now watch this. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of, the good, of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Look at God's words to, the, to, to Adam. You are what? Free. You are free. He's going to give him commands, but he wants him to know right up front. These commands I'm going to give you are coming from a place of freedom, not restriction. 
My commands for you are good. They're for your life. They're for your health. They're for your benefit. They're for your success. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. God's commands are always for our protection. You're free to eat from any of them, but this one, stay away from. Because the moment you do, you're going to die. Here's, here's an interesting thing. What was it about the tree that caused the man to die? Evil. The tree was evil? No. So God made an evil tree in the garden? No. No? I mean that. The knowledge killed him? What's that? The disobedience. I think that's what killed him. And he obviously didn't drop dead right there. But the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. God could have said um, anything. He could have given him any command. And the moment you broke that command, that introduces death. Because that's what sin does. It's interesting that God said the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll get to this later when, this, when it actually goes down in chapter 3. But let me just give you a little taste of it now. <clears throat> he, Adam is in a perfect garden. Has no only pleasure. Has no needs. Has no struggles. Only perfection. Did he already know what good was? He's walking and talking with the good God. So when he broke, when he and Eve broke God's command, did they gain the knowledge of good? They already had the knowledge of good. What did they gain? The knowledge of evil. Any time, hear me now. Any time we choose to do something different than what God says, the only thing we learn is evil. You understand? Nothing good comes out of disobedience. They already had the knowledge of good. The only thing they gained was the knowledge of evil, and that caused death. We'll talk about it more in chapter 3. I just want you to miss it. The Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So Adam sees all these animals, and, and he'll get to name them in, in a minute. Um, matter of fact, let me just read 19, I'm going to come back to that. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man named each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. So Adam is sitting there. By himself, and here comes Mr. Elephant and Mrs. Elephant. He goes, ah, I'll call that one Elephant and that one Mrs. Elephant. And here comes, you know, Cheetah. Ah, I'll call that one a Cheetah and that one Mrs. Cheetah. Now, all these animals, he sees them, male and female. He doesn't realize yet that he's just male. He doesn't realize the need he has. Not yet. God looks at him in verse, uh, what is that, 18. The Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. I don't know that Adam knew that he was alone at this point. 
It nowhere does it say, he said, God, I'm lonely. Help me. He didn't say that. God said, what did God say about his loneliness? What does he say? Not good. What has God said over everything he has created up to this point? It is good. 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 It is very good. Everything that God has done, everything has been very, this is the first time God says something's not good. And what he says is not good is that he realizes in his creative self that Adam is not whole. And so he says, I'm going to make him a, a, a helper suitable for him. When, when the Bible uses the word helper there, it means really completer. And if you think about man and, man and woman are created in the image of God. The Bible says in Genesis 1, in the image of, of him, he created them. The picture, biblically, the picture of full masculinity and full femininity give us a fuller picture of the fullness of God. God is not male, he is not female. God is fullness of both. And so the reason why marriage exists between a man and a woman is to give a fuller picture of the image of God to his hum, to his to, to to humanity that are created in his image. And so God says, in order for my image to be more clearly seen in this world, though it can be seen in everything I've made, I need someone to complete Adam, to complete my image alongside Adam. Does that make sense? So as his completer. Now, jump to verse uh, uh, 19 there. The Lord God formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. He brought to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever man called each living creature, that was his name. When God gave Adam the authority to name the creatures, this was a big deal. Because biblically, when you named something, you had dominion over it. Okay? In the story of creation, who named the stars? God. Who gave the sun the name sun? God did. Who gave the moon the name moon? Who first called the seas seas? Who, do you understand what I'm saying? So God named day and night and sky and land. as he, God named all the created realities. Okay, Why? Because he has dominion over it, over all creation. And then he made man, and he named man. So he has dominion over Adam. And when he, na- he made Adam, and then all these animals, he allowed man to name the animals. Why? To give him dominion over the animals. That's why he says, here's the earth. Subdue it. You have dominion over it. It is man's responsibility to subdue the earth. Not to rule over it as a tyrant. Not to take advantage of it and not to ruin it. But to care for it and love it and discover it. 
Do you understand? Adam didn't have all the knowledge of God in the Garden of Eden. And given the command to have dominion over the earth and the, or the animals, he, God is giving him the authority to care for them and learn them, discover them. Other than the animals, what else did Adam name? Verse 23. Woman. Woman. Said she will be called woman because so, she is taken from me. If dominion is given to the one who names something and Adam has dominion with the animals, what's that say about the male-female husband-wife relationship? We have to be submissive. <laughs> God has orchestrated. Now hear me, don't, don't, don't get all wigged out yet. God has ordained. Don't, don't look at your wife like that, Chuck. God has ordained. Now, I'm going to finish this statement, so don't check out just when I say it. God has ordained for the husband to have dominion over his family, wife and kids. Now, it's in the same context that he has dominion over the animals. Not to rule them as a tyrant, not to rule over them, but to care for them, to love them, and discover the wonder of them. Do you understand what I'm saying? So the husband's role is to care, help provide, and enter into this lifelong discovery of the wonder of this creature. And when the husband understands, I am not here to rule you. I'm here to care for you. I'm here to love you tenderly, to make sure you are not taken advantage of, that you are not harmed, and I will spend the rest of my life discovering the wonder that God created you. You know what type of good relationship that is? Yeah. Right? That's marriage. That's the role of a husband. And the wife has the beautiful response to say, I trust you. I trust your hand. I trust your heart. Have fun discovering all that is me. Good luck. (laughs) And just responds and completes each other. Does that make sense? So the man gave him all the livestock and the birds of the air and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a, deep, uh, into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place uh, with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, uh, rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Let me stop right there. This is my word for every single person. It's important to understand how God brought Adam his bride. Adam wasn't out beating the bushes. He wasn't looking and searching and begging and dating anything that came across his path. He wasn't filling out his Tinder profile. It wasn't like... God said, I need to provide you something and you need to go to sleep and not worry about it. 
And when Adam was taken out of the equation and wasn't struggling as wasn't working and wasn't searching, God brought him his completer. And one of the things that is so detrimental to relationships with, sing- with single people is when they get so worried about their control of the future that they try to push God's hand because God's moving too slow for them. They don't trust his provision, so they try to push it. If God's people would just back off and let God provide, when he, he knows the need. He's the one who says it's not good for you to be alone. And then God took his time in bringing him, bringing Adam, Eve. Eve got his hands off. He relaxed. He let God do his thing. And he took a nap. And I am convinced that Christian men and women, if they're single, will be so better off if they just got their stinking hands off of their dating life. And rested and relaxed and let God provide. I cannot tell you, and some of you can tell your own stories. Now on your second, third, or whatever marriage, when you've realized, man, I pushed it and I rushed it and I got into something that I probably shouldn't have gotten into, right? And if we just would have said, Lord... I'm not going to search. I'm not going to beat the bushes. You know what you're doing. And I love the fact that the Bible says um, when Adam was asleep and not searching, God brought him his completer. And the thing we have to understand about the completion that Eve was to Adam and Adam was to Eve is that they were each other's completer, body, soul, and spirit. And those three things have to be in place for a satisfying, good, happy marriage. There's got to be the body connection. There's, there's got to be a physical like, Whoa. there's got to be a soul connection. The soul is the things that we enjoy. Uh, and if you're married to someone who's into something you don't enjoy, you better learn to enjoy it. That, that's part of marriage. There's got to be some commonality there. And the spiritual connection is they love Jesus like I love Jesus. We're walking hand in hand, foot by foot, step by step towards the master and in his shadow. And if any one of those three is missing, you're working on two out of three cylinders. It can still work, but it's going to be work. And if you bypass two of those and only have one of those, (laughs) it's going to be a heck of a lot of work. Now, the great thing, and sometime, someday I'll preach about this and, I don't know, do a singles thing about this. The great thing about this is if at this point, from here on out, if you're a Christ follower from here on out, if you get married and, and you, you, you rushed it and you married one of the three but not all three of the three, somehow God says, well, that's your person. Uh, and there's a beautiful story in the Bible um, about Jacob who gets tricked into marrying the wrong person. And the person he really wanted to marry, the three out of three, he didn't get to marry first. And maybe the one out of three or zero out of three is the one he ended up marrying. 
There's a beautiful story in the scripture. It's interesting to me that the, the, the two ladies die. And when, when Jacob dies, he asks to be married next to the one that he married first that he really didn't love at first. He didn't ask to be buried next to the one that was the three out of three. He asked to be married next to the one that was a zero out of three. Because he knew that through that one came the son Judah, through whom would come the Messiah. That God has a way of redeeming those things that aren't right at first. But because of our faithfulness and because of our submission to what he does in the midst of a mess, he does something beautiful if we stay in it and commit. Does that make sense? Kind of? So I'm sure for Adam and Eve, they had three out of three as a fantastic marriage. They didn't have any problems until they had their first son. Which is always the problem when the kids show up. Uh, verse 25. The man said, now this is bone of my bone, uh, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. By the way, when the Bible says that God took a rib out of man, it, it's not an actual rib. It actually means a chunk of his body. Like, like God take, took a chunk out of the man. It's not a rib. Why do they say rib? Because it's a Hebrew word for side. For, okay. for, like he took his whole side. The interesting thing is God created a mortal wound uh, to give this guy a bride. And that's what happens in marriage. So just be careful. Um, just kidding. Uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Uh, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. This is how it works. Leave, cleave, and weave. In marriage, you leave. You leave your families of origin. And the woman has got to leave her mommy and her daddy, and the man has got to leave his mommy and his daddy. I shudder when I hear parents say of their soon-to-be son or daughter-in-law, we're gaining a daughter, we're gaining a son. No, you're not. You're losing yours because they're making their own family. They're not yours anymore. It's not about mom and dad. It's not about your family anymore. It's their family. They're gaining a family. You're not gaining a child. That's biblical. And successful marriages are those that have a mom and dad saying that you're on your own. We love you, obviously, but you are on your own. You figure it out. We're here to help and support you got a problem, that's on you. We'll give you wisdom from Scripture. But you leave, and then you cleave. One of the problems in marriages these days is there's no cleaving going on because they haven't first left. Mom and dad are still involved. And there has to be the leaving first. So the cleaving can happen. What? I'm not smart enough to know what cleaving means. Cleaving means a melding together of two people. They will, not they will not completely meld together as a couple when mom and dad are still over here involved in their marriage. The healthiest thing parents can do is say, we love you, you're on your own. We'll give you guidance, 
will give you support as is appropriate. But daughter, you answer to him. Son, you answer to her. You leave us. It's the hardest thing for parents to do. And some of you are not convinced of the truth of what I'm saying. And you're looking at me like, eh, I was following with them, Jesus. I get it, this part. No. I'm telling you, it's biblical. Joe and Miranda started their family. We didn't first gain a daughter-in-law. Joe gained a husband and Miranda gained a... Uh, sorry, <laughs> that did not happen. No. <laughs> Joe gained a wife and Miranda gained a husband. We didn't gain a daughter. Our son left and cleaved to his wife. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So if you have kids who are not married, remember this when that time comes. The man and woman both naked and felt, and they felt no shame. The whole idea of that is not just physically, but their entire life was, this is me. Uh, and there's no shame in it. Not just because they weren't hiding anything, but also I'm convinced that because they weren't being shamed. You got to be really safe with someone, right? To be that open and vulnerable with somebody. You got to know that you're safe. And that's why it says they could be that open and felt no shame because 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 they were they were say, they they weren't being shamed and 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 they was like look this is who this is me and there was a reception of you are exactly your per does it make sense anyway I need to be done that's that's chapter two any shouts cries of outrage. Did you say there was leave, cleave, and a third word? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, that's just my own thing. Leave, leave, cleave, and weave. Okay. You start weaving together your lives according to the kingdom of God and serving his purposes. Oh. You weave a tapestry of ministry. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right.